the theme of this talk is to some extent based on a recent book, Children's um, Trust in Other People's Testimony, especially about phenomena that are difficult for them to observe. So just to give you a little bit of background um, of a psychological nature, um, a lot of work in cognitive development in the wake of people like Piaget has emphasized children's fairly autonomous learning about the natural world or the physical world and the extent to which they explore, engage in hands-on um, experimentation and develop their own relatively stubborn or autonomous theories. And to that extent then, um, children's learning about things that were difficult to observe um, was somewhat neglected. But if you think about it, much of um, children's uh, thinking is likely to be directed at things that are uh, beyond easy uh, empirical investigation. So, for example, children's ideas about the past, about history, would be one good case. Um, children's ideas about many scientific entities, many scientific processes or entities are just unobservable. And um, children's ideas about religious phenomena, too, are not typically based on any kind of first-hand experience. So um, a good deal of my work then has been looking at how children learn in these unobservable domains and the extent to which they depend on other people for their ideas. So let me start with a quotation that may be a little bit familiar to you from um, Pascal Boyer, who was talking about um, his own work, I guess it was at King's when he was a young postdoc there. Um, he was asked to say a little bit about his research at dinner, and he explained these fairly elaborate witchcraft beliefs among the Fang, I think it was, in the Cameroons. Um, so, uh, hearing this um, account, um, there was a theologian sitting opposite who said, this is what makes anthropology so fascinating and so difficult too. You have to explain how people can believe such nonsense. Well, this particular exchange was um, picked up by Richard Dawkins, um, perhaps not very surprisingly, um, who pointed out that the theologian's own beliefs um, had certain exotic elements. Um, and uh, effectively, Dawkins dismisses this theologian as being somewhat complacent in the way in which he's... Um, responding to uh, Pascal Boyer. But my own reaction was um, a little bit different, in some sense more psychological. That's to say, I think it's an interesting question to ask um, as to why the theologian um, rejects these supernatural beliefs, uh, but also endorses his own, so to speak. So why is it that he regards witchcraft as nonsense while accepting Christian doctrine? And to what extent might there be a developmental basis um, to supernatural beliefs such that some are taken to be perfectly ordinary um, and others are believed to be in some sense uh, nonsensical? So that was, that's the, that was the thought that I had and which to some extent guides this particular um, presentation. And part of the uh, approach then is to ask, do we see signs of this schism 
um, in young children as they think about um, certain kinds of belief on the one hand which they accept and take for granted versus others which they regard as, as um, fictional or nonsensical. So I'll go through four different sections. First of all, asking about the child's stance toward um, magic and looking back at some early work in cognitive development. Then I'll turn to children's, some more recent work, looking at children's attitudes towards the miraculous. And then I'll introduce a notion of ontological lulling, which is an attempt to get at um, uh, children's acceptance of the miraculous. <coughs> and finally, I'll say a word about where I want to go with this um, next. So a good place to start in thinking about children's ideas about magic is um, back in the 1920s. Um, Piaget was writing about children's causal explanations. And if, I mean, to summarize a fairly complicated developmental account, he argues that young children are rather insensitive to uh, antecedents and consequences, in, um, especially in various sorts of mechanism, and are very willing to invoke um, magical explanations rather than to offer um, a bona fide causal account. So it's worth looking a bit further at this view. You probably can recognize the young Piaget, at least from the pipe, so to speak, um, a fixture, I think, for about uh, 80 years. The other person may be less familiar to you. It's Susan Isaacs, um, who was um, an interesting character in the sense that she combined an interest in both Piagetian theory and in psychoanalysis. And she opened a fairly progressive uh, school in Cambridge, Cambridge, England. Um, I can't remember the exact date that it was opened, but it was certainly um, operating in the... 30s, um, and it was certainly operating at a certain point when Piaget himself was visiting Cambridge. And um, Piaget, knowing of Isaacs, went to visit the school. It was called the Maltings. Um, and you can read in Isaacs' account of a book called Intellectual Growth in Young Children. Um, an account of um, his visit, and in particular, his conversation with a child called Dan, who was five at the time, who happened to be sitting on a tricycle uh, in the garden. And Piaget seized the opportunity to do a sort of little clinical interview with Dan by asking him to explain how the tricycle um, moved along. And as you say, as you can see, Dan's reply was pretty cogent. Um, no sign of witchcraft or magical thinking <laughs> there. Well, it's not clear exactly how Piaget reacted to this um, child on the spot, um, but um, because I was sort of intrigued at this, I managed to locate um, a subsequent uh, reaction of Piaget, which can be found in his uh, book review, 
of Susan Isaac's book, the book I've just quoted from, Intellectual Development in Young Children, published, as you see, in, in Mind, which in those days um, was not a straight philosophy journal. It was, it was bridging psychology and philosophy. Um, and he goes on to argue that uh, uh, it, the book is an interesting one, and he talks a little bit about Susan Isaac's educational philosophy of allowing children to answer their own questions. Um, but it's clear that Dan has um, stuck in his mind, and he starts talking about the extent to which the Maltings had a, a typical group of children or a more precocious, advanced group of children, since a lot of the children came from academic families. In other words, he starts to argue that um, Dan was uh, developmentally advanced in, his, in terms of his psychological um, uh, development. It's interesting to look at another person from around that time. In this room, I need, don't think I need to introduce her. Maybe I do. Um, the young Margaret Mead. Um, and she was also provoked by uh, Piaget's writings about causality, and she decided to investigate their validity um, among the Manu's children in the Papuanti Islands, Papua New Guinea, yeah. Um, and her technique was to um, approach children with um, various hypothetical mishaps, such as, for example, a canoe going adrift, and to invite the children to explain what had caused this mishap with the expectation that if the children were already, as it were, inducted into the adult way of thinking, they would be likely to invoke magical or witchcraft explanations, supernatural explanations, um, or not, as the case might be. Well, what she found was that, um, in fact, the children were um, very much focused on um, plausible physical explanations. So in the case of the canoe, they would argue that the owner likely hadn't fastened it properly. This paper is provocative in the sense that she sort of takes the Piagetian account of children gradually overcoming um, a tendency to magical thinking and gradually arriving at a more objective analysis of causality. She inverts the developmental sequence and basically says children start, so to speak, with their feet on the ground. They are pretty sensitive to observable causes and effects. Uh, and it's only slowly in the course of their development that they become inducted into these more elaborate supernatural explanations, which are on offer in the particular community that, um, that they live in. Interestingly, this work by Mead was... Um, not really taken up by psychologists, it's fair to say, but I think she was quite prescient in uh, her conclusions. And um, if we look at a large body of evidence in developmental psychology, and I won't, I won't go into all the details, a lot of it is based on giving children um, unusual phenomena that they've not encountered before and asking them to explain uh, why such and such occurs. It's also based on children's spontaneous talk uh, with their parents, um, providing explanations for things that puzzle them or seeking explanations for things that puzzle them. But without 
as I say, detailing all the papers and all the evidence, the broad conclusion that's emerged from that is that children are um, pretty astute in terms of their causal analysis. That's to say, if it's a biological phenomenon, they tend to offer a biological explanation. If it's a psychological phenomenon, they offer a psychological explanation. They may not be offering the correct explanation, but they're in the right ballpark. And what they very rarely do is to (coughs) offer a causal framework that isn't, as it were, uh, based on ordinary, everyday causality, be it physical, psychological, um, or biological. So that really provides a good deal of support for, um, as I say, the the observations that um, Margaret Mead offered uh, back in the 30s. So... um, more recently, this led us, us, when I say us, I mean especially myself and a, a former student, Kathleen Corvo, to look at the extent to which children, if they are indeed sensitive to um, outcomes that defy ordinary causality, and in some sense that seems plausible, if they already understand the way that ordinary causality operates, presumably they can identify those outcomes which don't fit in with ordinary causality. So we wondered about the extent to which, in some sense, they possess a magic detector and the extent to which, given that they can detect magic, they would think of it as not something that takes place within the ordinary world, but something that might take place in a narrative world, um, a fairy tale, and so forth. So this particular study involved um, children of two age groups, um, three- and four-year-olds, five- and seven-year-olds, and children would typically be told about, um, would be shown a picture of somebody they'd never um, heard about before, um, and then we would tell a story about this person, uh, a narrative about the person, and on the basis of the narrative, the question was, would the child decide that this was a real person that they were hearing about, or would they decide that it was a make-believe person? And more specifically... The stories differed in terms of whether they did or did not include some untoward or magical outcome, with the expectation that children would zoom in on the magical outcome as a clue to the fact that the central character was um, was make-believe rather than real. So, for example, we might talk about a soldier or a child, and some children would get a story in which, as you can see, Um, there was a magical element, that's to say this is a very brave soldier named John Diamond. He fought in many battles. His special sword kept him from dying in any battle. The child listens to that little story, and then we say, so where do you think this soldier ought to be put? Which box? The box where we put all the real people, and we pre-tested children so that they understood this box, or the box where we put all the make-believe or pretend people? So hopefully the child is going to um, send this soldier to the pretend box. And similarly, we might give the child a more prosaic historical story. This is a very fierce soldier named Bill Gold. He fought in many wars. He died in Virginia when he was fighting in the Civil War. And the expectation would be that the child would um, pick up on the historical nature of the story or the non-magical nature of the story and put... um, that soldier in the real box. So in a moment I'll show you then the frequency with which children chose these two boxes as a function of their 
um, age. And as you can see, the younger children, in terms of sending these characters to the real box, are indifferent. They do that as often for the stories which invoke some uh, pretend character and the stories which include some real character. Conversely, for the older children, you can see a sharp differentiation. If it's a more historically prosaic narrative, they put that character into the real box. Conversely, um, if the story includes some magical elements, they rarely put the character into the real box. So a very clear interaction between story and age there. And the, we also asked the children, once they had allocated these characters to give us a justification, and there were various kinds of justification. Let me focus on th- um, at least three of them. Sometimes they zoomed in into, and t- talked about some <coughs> implausible um, feature of the story. There's no such thing as invisible sails. Seas don't make you live forever. Sometimes they focused on more historical or realistic elements. Um, very, very occasionally they took a closer look at the photo. That was not what we intended, but some of them did that. And again, since these are young children, um, of course, some children come up with more or less nothing, uh, I don't know, um, or something unrelated. So here is the pattern for the younger children. And given that they were random, essentially, in their allocation of the pictures, not very surprising that their answers are mostly um, uninformative. But if we look at the older children, we get a very different picture. Um, So having put the character into the pretend box, you can see that they often zoom in on some implausible aspect of the story, whereas they rarely do that for the more historical stories. But it flips over. If they have put the character into the real box, then they focus on the more prosaic or historical aspects of the story. So for some reason or other, between three and four and um, six, we're seeing this quite sharp um, emergence of an ability to think about narratives as split into two genres, one where um, the narrative is aiming at the truth, so to speak, about what actually happened, and another where the narrative is likely to include things that can't really happen and is therefore necessarily a fictional story. So going back to the early remarks about children's sensitivity to magic, the implication of these findings is that, yes, children are sensitive to what we can think of as um, violations of ordinary causal uh, progress or sequence, and insofar as they come across those in a narrative, they are inclined to think of that as a, um, as a, as a piece of fiction rather than as a, a, a narrative about what really happened. So children rarely invoke magic as an explanation. Um, By five or six years of age, um, they use it to think about um, different types of narrative. I should say there's there's more to say about the younger children as to why they fail, but I won't go into that now. But if if anybody's interested in the details of the developmental story, I can unpack that a little bit more. So I started, I said, this is section one, do children believe in magic? The answer is pretty straightforward, no, they don't. Contrary to the implication of the early Piagetian 
stands. So now I'm on section two. Do children believe in miracles? Do children accept? And I'm going to give you three, uh, as it were, mini case studies. Do children accept that God is omniscient and immortal? Do they believe in the afterlife? And how do they respond to miracle stories? And this piece of research, in some sense, is building on the previous research that I've just described, where we were presenting historical versus, so to speak, fairy stories. Okay, so let's start with, do children accept that God is omniscient and immortal? Um, So following in the wake of Justin Barrett, um, some of you may know of his research on this theme, Um, we did a follow-up study in which children received a so-called omniscience interview, and they were asked to think about their friend on the one hand and uh, God on the other, and the extent to which these two beings are or are not constrained in what they will know. We did a parallel interview on the life cycle in which we again talked to the children about their best friend and about God, and we asked various questions about the extent to which each of these beings um, was a baby some time ago, is getting older and older, will die eventually or not, and of course the, the basic question is to what extent will the child differentiate between the friend and God in each of these two cases, and at what point does that differentiation come in. So just to give you a bit more detail about the omniscience interview, let's pretend we gave this present to God or your best friend and we asked him to tell us what's inside without taking the paper off. Would God or your best friend know for sure? And then we would ask for a justification. So here are the findings of the justification data. You can see that At four years of age, we're not seeing much differentiation between um, their justifications with respect to the friend and their justifications with respect to God. But by five years of age, and this fits in with their broader understanding of the theory of mind, children are starting to not invoke perceptual constraints on God, even though those are fairly frequent for their friend. What do they do instead of invoking perceptual constraints? Well, they talk about the special powers that God has to, for example, know things that other people don't, to see through the gift wrapping and so forth. And I may say, I won't go into the details now, but for the immortality interview, the same pattern emerged with the four-year-olds not showing much differentiation between friend and God and the five-year-olds already thinking of their friend as moving through a life cycle baby, child, getting older, eventually dying, and God as this invariant being. So in both domains, then, the important thing to underline is that the child is gradually acknowledging and accepting, so far as we can tell, the fact that um, there are these special beings, such as God, who violate ordinary causal constraints. The ordinary causal constraint being either that of um, limitations on knowledge imposed by perceptual obstacles or the limitations on on the duration of life imposed by the biological life cycle. So in some sense then you could say that these these data suggest that children are already tempted to accept that miracles can happen. There are certain beings who violate ordinary human constraints, ordinary mortal constraints. 
Turning to uh, work on the afterlife, um, this was done with slightly older children, but <clears throat> we see in some ways the same um, pattern with children gradually accepting um, the miraculous. So we gave children two different stories, one that led them to think about death in more biological terms in the sense that there's no religious elements. As you can see at the end of the story, a doctor comes to talk to the story character about what has happened, namely the death of his grandfather. Um, but there's no hint of heaven or the afterlife. The same child would also get a priest story, which was very similar. It involved the death of a grandparent. But as you can see, toward the end, um, the priest uh, arrived and does invoke the possibility of an afterlife. After both of those stories, children were asked a fairly long series of questions, basically asking them to say whether the grandparent, whether the various functions or processes of the grandparent had now terminated, or whether there were some that were continuing despite the death. Some of these questions zoomed in on bodily functions or bodily parts, such as the eyes. Some of them focused more on mental experience. Can he still see? So the child would, would essentially be asked, so Juan's grandfather, um, have his eyes stopped working? And the child would answer yes or no. And depending on that, uh, we then invited the child to offer us some kind of justification or explanation for that yes or no judgment. So, broadly speaking, a negative judgment, <clears throat> his eyes don't work, ended up with biological justifications, um, where the child focuses on the absence of any um, activity or the kind of... Uh, uh, consequences of being buried and so forth. On the other hand, if the child said, yes, this function is continuing, so yes, his grandfather can still see. Why is that? Why can he still see? Well, in everything, in heaven, everything can work. Even if he or she is dead, the soul keeps working. So these justifications moved in two different just directions and were fairly easy to differentiate. Okay, so now I'm going to show you um, a, an overview of the data. It's a little bit busy, but I'll talk you through it. So this is the data for the seven-year-old. Um, and it's essentially the percentage of religious answers, the white bars, the percentage of biological answers, um, black bars, and those which we find <coughs> difficult to classify because there was a contradiction between the yes or no answer and the explanation. Several things to notice. The paucity of religious explanations for one thing. And the predominance of biological explanations for the other. You can also see a sort of dualistic stance here in the sense that there's a bit more talk about continuity and um, religion with respect to the mind as opposed to the body. But it's fairly subtle. And last but not least, 
you can see that the, prime, the, the nature of the story pushes the child around a little bit. So in other words, if we focus on the questions that were posed in the wake of the doctor's story, the biological approach is more frequent, whereas if we focus on the pre-story, that biological approach is suppressed and we get more uh, religious answers. Let's take a look at the 11-year-olds, and you can see that the white is getting bigger, but it could simply. Um, in other respects, it's the same pattern of dualism and a good deal of priming when we tell the, uh, the religious story. So it's interesting to think a little bit about what is happening there between seven, year, seven years of age and 11 years of age. One account is, well, the child in the wake of Margaret Mead, so to speak, is beginning to listen to the narrative that is offered to them about what happens to you when you die and is beginning to accept that. And that narrative is beginning to displace the more biological narrative. But it's also possible um, uh, that the child is indeed beginning to accept the religious narrative, but it's not necessarily displacing the biological approach. In other words, in the same child, it's conceivable that you would see both depending upon the kind of story you present the child and the extent to which you focus on the, as it were, the, the mental as opposed to the bodily. So what we did was to look at each child's data across the two stories and the various questions. And essentially we asked, is this child consistently biological? Or is this child consistently religious in their way that they answer the questions? Or thirdly, does the child move from one to the other depending upon the particular story and question that's being posed? And here's the overview of that data. So what you see, as you would expect, of course, a developmental change given the two previous figures, but the interesting developmental change is twofold. A decline in the proportion of bio children who are consistently biological but not an increase in the proportion of children who are consistently religious. That's just pretty stable. What you actually see is a, an increment in the proportion of children who show this mixed stance. And um, that fits in with some other work that I've done in collaboration with Rita Astuti, whom some of you will no doubt know, working in Madagascar. It fits in with some other work done by Christine Lagare in South Africa, where she interviewed young um, adults and older adults about um, the causes of AIDS, broadly speaking, what you see in all of these different domains is the possibility that the person approaches the very same phenomenon um, in two ways. One, focusing on a more straightforward or biological quasi-scientific answer, um, and one in which the same person um, will focus on a more religious or supernatural answer. Um, and for our money, then, the most interesting finding was, if anything, that it's not that the religious approach displaces the more prosaic or biological approach, but it sits alongside and can be turned on and off depending upon the context. And Rita has interesting ethnographic data of her respondents shifting backwards and forwards between these two modes um, as she herself joins them in participating in various funereal rites. 
Okay. So now let's turn um, to religious stories. So this is the sort of third part of my um, section on, on the miraculous. So it looks as if children accept that God has special powers, immortal, omniscient. It looks as if children gradually accept that there's an afterlife. How then do they approach religious stories? And this was, if anything, suggested to us by a theme suggested to us by parents. So going back to the earlier work I mentioned on presenting children with realistic and um, um, fairy stories, some parents said, well, what about religious stories? How will a child respond to a religious story? After all, a religious story includes something that defies ordinary causality. So does that mean given that children by the age of five or six are using this magic detector to detect that the, something odd has taken place in the story, therefore the story character is, is um, a fictional person, do they bring that attitude to religious stories? Do they, I mean, to put it simply, do they think of religious stories as fairy stories? Well, if, I mean, given the analysis that I'd offered of the earlier work, I was led to that prediction young children will think of religious stories as fairy stories, but that seemed uh, unlikely. And so we decided to uh, test it out. And we tested four different groups of children. Um, In particular, we were interested in the children's religious education. So down here, you see a group of so-called non-religious children. They were not going to church with their parents and they were going to a regular U.S. state school, so little exposure to religion in their lives, other than what they might get on the fly from other sources. At the top, we had children who were going to church with their parents and also attending a parochial school, and then these middle two groups, they were doing one but not the other. Um, So, yeah... These these would typically be, of course, children who were being sent to a parochial school because of its academic reputation, but not because the parents were particularly prone to that denomination. So we were wondering whether we would see any differences among these four groups, and we were also wondering whether, um, when we looked at these three groups, uh, we would see differentiation insofar as this group, of course, is getting, as it were, a double dose of religion, uh, both in the context of the a religious institution and in the context of uh, their school. So we had, for this study, three story types. Realistic stories, a bit like the soldier in the Civil War story that I told you before. More magical or fairy tale-like stories, similar to the one that I told you before about the soldier who had a special sword. And finally, religious stories in which there's a, as it were, a divine intervention. And the basic question was very similar to the one we posed earlier, to what extent is the child going to approach these stories as something that could really happen, so that the main character is likely to be a real person, and to what extent does the child think of this as a, as a story which has impossible elements, and therefore the story character is, is fictional. So there are the key elements underlined. And here are the findings for the three non-religious groups. So the top part of the earlier slide, the three groups who were getting 
either one or two doses of religion. And if you ignore these findings for the moment, these findings are very similar to the ones I showed you before. In other words, if it's a realistic story, the child often puts the story character into the real box, much less likely to do so if there are some impossible or magical elements in the story. Sometimes the child will do that, but much less frequently than the realistic stories. But what's especially striking is, provided it's a divine intervention, that doesn't bother the child. It's as if the child has this magic detector, but the child doesn't, as it were, switch it on and say, well, this couldn't really happen, therefore this person doesn't exist. They're perfectly happy to accept that this is a real person. Finally, let me show you the results for the children who were, as it were, deprived of religious education. Very different, as you can see. So they agree with the three religious groups about the non-religious stories, if you like, the prosaic or historical stories. They're even more sensitive to the existence of some impossible element, and they're just as sensitive if you introduce a magical element that's got a religious uh, force or divine power behind it as compared to a more straightforward fairy tale type magic. It's worth pointing out that, you know, I've done a lot of developmental research in different domains with young children, um, especially in the preschool, elementary school period, and I've rarely seen such a dramatic uh, variation uh, due to, you know, uh, family background, presumably, or, or precisely to the kind of testimony that these two, these, these groups of children are hearing. Okay. So, summarizing the findings, children come to accept that God is omniscient and immortal. They also come to believe in the afterlife, and they accept that miracles can really happen insofar as the three religious groups, let's set the secular children aside for a moment, the, the religious children accept that miracles can really happen and befell um, actual people. So do children believe in miracles? Yes. Well, I better say mostly because, of course, there are those secular children. Okay, so I hope I've uh, provided enough evidence for you to conclude that in some ways, then, these children are exemplifying the kind of um, dual stance that we see in the theologian they look at certain uh, outcomes that divide, defy their own ordinary, everyday causal thinking, and they say that well, that couldn't really happen, it's merely magical. Whereas they look at other outcomes and they accept that those could happen, and they incorporate them into their religious beliefs. So the question is really how, how is it that that comes about in the child's mind? And so now I'm moving on to the third section, um, which I want to talk about the so-called principle of charity. So this is a notion that's been um, used by certain philosophers in thinking about how we interpret one another's remarks, particularly remarks that are um, straining our understanding. Um, they argue that there's an inclination on our part as listeners, to be charitable, to assume that there is some kind of 
rational claim being made. And my guess is that we can see something operating very early in life in children, both listening to adults speak and watching adults act. So let me unpack that a little bit more. So the argument is that children will make sense of others' acts and utterances by charitably entertaining the beliefs on which they are based. So let's take a concrete case. The child sees somebody kneel down, close their eyes, and um, engage in prayer. Well, in everyday life, children don't normally see adults do that. Um, it's not part of everyday intercourse. Um, so in some sense, it's an anomaly in the child's everyday interactions. How does the child make sense of it? Well, I think it's plausible that the child makes sense of it in the ways that the believing adult makes sense of it. That's to say the child temporarily entertains, whether the child is a believer or not, the belief that is guiding the adult's actions. So the child doesn't, at this point, necessarily need to subscribe to the existence of God. What the child may well do, though, is to entertain as a possibility that God does exist, and that explains why the person <coughs> is able to uh, kneel down and pray. And since God has special powers, as we already saw, the child will also be willing to entertain the possibility that the prayer will reach God. So the thought here is that, um, for those of you who know this body of work, um, you, it's possible um, in the eyewitness literature to observe the ways in which, when somebody has observed a certain phenomenon and is interviewed about it afterwards, various suggestions on the part of the interviewer invite the person who saw the movie or the video or the event, to entertain the presuppositions of the questioner. And if those questions are sufficiently repeated, the, the person being interviewed gradually um, starts to think that the presuppositions of the interviewer, that the, the, the one of the cars in the mini-movie was going very fast, for example, um, actually took place. So... This is work, famous work in experimental psychology of memory by Elizabeth Loftus, and showing that people um, sometimes lose track of the source of a particular idea which they frequently entertained. The idea was planted by, almost by suggestion by somebody who was interviewing them, but to the extent that it becomes more and more familiar to them, it becomes an idea which they associate with their own generation rather than an external source. And I'm guessing that something very similar is happening with children. They live in a community where the community presents them with utterances and actions which are best interpreted in light of the beliefs of the actors. So, charitably, the children will entertain those beliefs but as they do that repeatedly, the implication would be that they lose track of the fact that these ideas were suggested to them by the acts of the surrounding community. So the implication of that is pretty straightforward, that beliefs about God's existence will be more frequently entertained 
if there are lots of su such acts and utterances. A child, for example, growing up um, in an Islamic community will hear the call to prayer several times a day. That call to prayer will invite the child to momentarily entertain the existence of God. I've just mentioned this idea of Loftus, that because of source amnesia, as it's called, frequent suggestions from an interviewer, and this, as I say, takes place with adults, not just with children, frequent suggestions from an interviewer will sometimes be mistaken by the recipient, eventually be mistaken by the recipient as ideas that they uh, invented for themselves or observed for themselves. Last but not least, the work of uh, Daniel Kahneman um, has suggested that ideas which we can easily bring to mind, uh, the classic example is um, in, the wake of a, in the wake of a news report about some tragedy such as a plane crash, people's estimates of the probability of there being a plane crash um, are disproportionately um, exaggerated. Why is that? Well, because they estimate probability not in terms of some quantified notion, but in terms of the ease with which they can bring such an event, even an instance of such an event, to mind. So presumably, to the extent that these ideas are frequently entertained, um, they will become more available among children growing up in religious communities. And that will lead the child to um, confuse, so to speak, availability with likelihood. So broadly speaking, then, this principle of charity, um, to my mind, leads to what I've called ontological lulling. So ideas which seem counterintuitive to the child will, if sufficiently frequently implied by the surrounding community's acts and utterances, will come to seem pretty plausible. So in short, miracles come to seem like ordinary events. Um, as I've said, I want to apply this to children, but I think it applies to adults as well. The Cambridge theologian being a case in point. And my hunch is that it likely applies outside of religion to moral, political and historical beliefs. Um, there's a lot of talk in the United States at the moment in the wake of the presidential election about the divide and the mis... mis understanding, difficulty in understanding, I should say, of those who did or did not vote for the current president in making sense of those who voted differently. Several books are talking about, the, in some sense, the deafness on the part of the two divisions. Um, well, up to a point that one could argue that we're seeing a different, a similar kind of phenomena um, where from the point of view of one group, the ideas of the other group seem absurd, whereas from the point of view of the in-group, the ideas of the in-group seem natural, plausible, and uh, not at all, so to speak, supernatural or magical. Okay, let me just say a last word about where I would like to um, take this. So... Um, as Harvey mentioned, some time ago I wrote a book about children's imagination and in some ways part of the message of that book was that the imagination had been to some extent maligned by psychologists. That's to say they had thought of it as something that 
often led the child astray, didn't help the child think about objective reality. And I argued that that was too negative a view, that in many ways children used their imagination to think about alternatives to reality, but to also analyse reality in terms of cause and effect and also in terms of making moral judgments and even in terms of planning for the future. So in some sense in that book I was emphasising the sort of fertility and richness of the imagination. But more recently, I've also been struck by a variety of evidence, and I won't list um, the various sources right now, but a variety of evidence suggesting that actually, yes, children do have an imagination. We can see it in their pretend play from about two years of age. But it's pretty pedestrian. Most of what they imagine in their pretend play um, is a reiteration of everyday causal scripts, tea parties, visits to the doctor, um, and so forth. So more broadly then, I want to uh, try to work on the following theme, namely that, yes, children have a rich imagination, but it's mostly applied to the kind of knowledge they acquire about ordinary reality. It's only in the course of development that by virtue of narrative fiction and by virtue of religious representations that they build into their imagination the possibility of defying everyday causality and for better or for worse then their imagination becomes more liberated and less pedestrian. So that's where I would like to take this um, in the future. But let me stop there. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Great stuff.